Good morning, church. It's good to have you, especially you uh, O Kids folks that are in here with us during the message. Um, this is good. And um, welcome. It's good to have all of you that are worshiping online with us as well. Let me pray and we'll get started. Father God, we need your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Father, I need your Holy Spirit even to deliver the message you put on my heart to share. And I pray that you would come and invigorate us, quicken us, um, make us more and more alive in Christ this morning and teach us and guide us. And I just pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So it's the last Sunday of 2020, and uh, I have the privilege of, of preaching a one-off sermon, if you will. It's not part of a series, and I've elected to title this sermon, Famous Last Words. And uh, part of the reason I chose that title is because my sermon text comes out of the last book of our Bibles, out of the book of Revelation. And the text itself is the seventh of seven letters uh, that appear in Revelation 2 and 3. So it's the last letter of seven. It's in the last book of the Bible. And so that's where it comes from, famous last words. And so my desire would be obviously that this message would set us up well for entering into a new year, into 2021. I've been studying myself in the book of Revelation. I've been afraid probably to really dive into that book for a long time, even as a pastor, just because it's prophetic literature and it's full of imagery and, and numerology and it's, it's just full of symbols, right? And, and so there's always this fear kind of in your heart that, uh, you know, that's going to be too much for me. Um, it's just going to be, you know, just maybe too difficult. And there's other parts of scripture that are more clear and easier to understand. And I'll just keep going there. But last year in my men's group, we studied the book of Daniel. And if you remember, we had a sermon series on Daniel one through six, and we decided to keep going. And we launched into the prophetic part of the book of Daniel. And I found myself so encouraged by what was in there that it wasn't that difficult to understand. Well, yes, maybe there are parts of it that are really deep and you got to dig. But the majority of Daniel 7 through 12 is just, it's, 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 it's wonderful. It's God's word. It was so assuring and encouraging. And that launched me into uh, the book of Revelation. So I've been in it for a while myself. And this text is coming out of um, out of. Revelation chapter 3. So here's what's going on. The Apostle John is still alive. He is on the Isle of Patmos, which is like miles off of the western coast of, of Turkey. And it's a penal colony, similar to Alcatraz in the San Francisco Bay, similar to Australia, to England um, centuries ago. And so um, we have this this prison colony, if you will, on a rock in the sea. And that's where John the apostle is. Why? Because he wouldn't stop witnessing about Jesus being God and about the gospel and about the kingdom of God. He wouldn't stop. And so rather than martyr him and, and, and 
which would create a following and make it maybe intensify these people called Christians, they put him on this island. And while he's there in his upper, he's, he's maybe in his 80s, he is still very useful to God. God comes to him on a Sabbath day in his time worshiping God and ushers him up into the heavenlies. And he sees the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. He sees him and Jesus speaks to him and asks him, basically, he says, I'm going to dictate, you write this down. I want you to write down what you hear and what you see. And I want you to send these letters to the seven churches. And so there are these seven churches in Asia Minor, in modern day Turkey. And um, I have a map of the seven. And so what does Jesus do? He dictates these letters, one for each of the seven churches. And John writes this down. And this book, the book of Revelation, ends up being a circuit letter, a letter that is taken from uh, Patmos to the church in Ephesus, which church tradition says that the apostle John and Jesus, his mother Mary, lived there after Christ was, re was uh, resurrected and ascended to heaven. This is where John and Mary lived, and he was likely very much involved in the church in Ephesus. Uh, and from that church in Ephesus came several other churches that maybe got planted out of that mother church, but the gospel spread, and it spread in this region. It started at Ephesus, and the postal route, if you will, for this area went kind of in a, in a weird circle, going from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And so the text that we're going to read in just a minute is Jesus's letter. The risen Jesus uh, sends a letter to the church in Laodicea. And so that's our text this morning. The interesting thing about Revelation, again, is a lot of the, the symbols and the metaphors and, and the, the uh, you know, things that represented other things, numbers were really important. And the number seven in the Hebrew prophetic literature uh, represented something other than just the number seven that follows six and is before eight. The number seven actually represented completeness or perfection. So Revelation is full of this number. Uh, there's, a, there's a scroll uh, that has seven seals. There are seven angels with seven trumpets. There are seven bowls that are going to be poured out in the book. So seven is completeness. And just like God made the world in six days and then rested for one more, and then it was finished. Creation is done. Seven, you get that? So seven of seven. I think there's probably some significance to the fact that this is the seventh letter of seven. But that's where we're going. I want to I wanna look at that. So let's read the text, if you wouldn't mind, if you wouldn't mind standing as I read the word of God. This is Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hear the word of God. (coughs) Excuse me. So I want to point out the very last sentence in this letter to the church of Laodicea. Why? Because this is the very last sentence of all seven letters. It's repeated in all seven. And it says, he who has, has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I just want to point that out because it doesn't say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear the letter that I'm sending to his church or to your church. It's hear the message of the letters to the churches, right? Hear what the Spirit says to all the churches, all seven. So I think that's interesting. And the reason I think that's interesting is because if this book of Revelation was sent out and was read in different churches, all seven churches, and each church heard the other six churches' letters, and at the end of each letter it says, I hope you, you, know, I hope you have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to this church, but to all the churches. There must be something in all these letters that it could be very, very valuable to all the churches. And I think, and I could be wrong, but seven letters, seven churches, it's in the final book of the Bible. I, I'm tempted to believe that out of these seven letters comes challenging um, admonishment, encouragement for the church the church of Jesus Christ throughout all time. So does that mean there's something in this letter for Orangewood? I think so. I think so. And the Lord's led me to preach on just this letter. And I believe it's because I need to hear it. And maybe you do too. So may we all have ears to hear what God would have us hear for ourselves. But also, listen, what is Orangewood? We're a church. What's the church? It is each of us. It is all of us together. You are Orangewood. I am Orangewood. So there you go. So let's look at, we're going to break this down and look at each verse. So verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So this is Jesus. It's kind of, he's introducing himself. I'm the author of this letter. And he describes himself using three titles. The amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. Let's just look at these for just a minute. Uh, So the first one is the amen. What does amen mean? It means surely. It means truly. It It means certainly. That's what it means. When Jesus would say verily, verily, or truly, truly, and he did that a few times in the Gospels, the Greek word is amen, amen. Amen, amen. Truly, truly. What I'm about to say is absolutely certain. It is true. It is assured. So listen up. 
And how does he describe himself at the beginning of this letter? I am the amen. I am. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is using the title of the, the amen. That's who he is. Then the second one is the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. In John 8 and 12, Jesus talks about the fact that he is um, speaking the words of God the Father. That his witness to who God is and what God desires to happen, it is, he is representing God. And not only is he representing God, but he is the God-man. He's the second person of the Trinity. His witness is faithful. It is trustworthy. Why do we have witnesses in trials even today? We're trying to find the truth, discover the truth, have people, they swear on a Bible before they share their testimony. Why the Bible? Isn't that interesting? Jesus the amen, the faithful and true witness. And then lastly, he's the beginning of God's creation. Now, that kind of makes, it ruffles some of our feathers because we know that scripture teaches that Jesus is not the first created being. There are religions that believe that today, that Jesus is not God, but he is the, he's the prime, the first, create, the first created being. Well, that's not who Jesus is. We know that from Colossians, from Colossians 1, and where it describes Jesus not just as the firstborn, but he is, he is the source. And listen, the Greek word that's translated beginning, we don't really have a good word for it, or maybe we do, but it's beginning. The Greek word is arche, and arche means the source of something, the originator the starter of something. So when Jesus describes himself as the beginning of the creation, what he's saying is, I am the one who spoke it into being. I'm the amen, I'm the true and faithful witness, and I am the starter, the originator, the speaker into existence of creation. I want to read just a section of the letter, Paul's letter to Colossians chapter 1. Just listen to this. Here's what it says about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn. There it is again. The archae of all creation. For by him, listen, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So that's who's speaking. The amen, the faithful, true witness, the arche of all creation. So what does he say next? What he says next is this. He says, I know your works. I know your works. Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea, I know your works. Now listen, when the amen, when the faithful, true witness and the arche of all creation says, I know your works, he's not just talking about he doesn't just know what you're doing or what you've done. It goes significantly deeper than that. He knows the heart motivation of everything you do, why you do it at the base motivation level. Listen, that you sometimes are not even aware that what's motivating you. You ever find yourself in an argument because someone has said something and it's triggered you? 
you're triggered. And now you're defensive and you're trying to win the argument and you've kind of, you're losing sight of the point of the conversation. You've been triggered. You don't even understand why. Why am I, why has my emotional reservoir been tapped and I'm spewing? This conversation doesn't really measure to the level that I'm feeling this intensity. To, you've been triggered. Why? You don't even know why sometimes. And sometimes we need hours of counseling to understand what's going on in that reservoir of emotion that we have. God knows your reservoir. He knows every drop that's in it. He knows you, he created you, he sustains you. Your next breath and brainwave are a gift of his enabling grace. So he says, I know your works, church. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either be cold or hot. Now listen, sometimes we've heard, maybe you've heard teaching on this text and it's basically saying, God doesn't like lukewarmness. What he wants is he wants you to either be passionately hot about something or he would rather you be absolutely cold again about something. He just doesn't want you in the middle. And I gotta tell you, that's not what he's talking about here. And we know that because of some geological and geographic details about the city of Laodicea. So I have a picture here. Um, there are two cities, two cities that are close to the city of Laodicea. Laodicea is in the... Um, uh, it's, in a, it's in a river valley. And the two closest cities to Laodicea are Aeropolis and Colossae. And Aeropolis is known for its water, and Colossae is known for its water. And what's interesting is today, the modern-day city in Turkey is still known for the water from Aeropolis back when this letter was written. What are they known for? Hot springs. They have hot mineral springs. The crust of the earth is thin, the magma heats up water and, and creates these mineral springs and out come calcium carbonate, which is white. It's salt-like. And so what do we have? This is a modern-day picture of Aeropolis. Isn't that amazing? And it's hot, hot mineral springs. What do we do with hot mineral springs? Even today, we still do this. We find that they have medicinal value. They're, they're good for skin irritations. And even when you swim in the ocean here, uh, at Daytona, what happens when you swim a lot in salt water? Your cuts and scratches and bruises, they heal faster. So here we have hot springs in Aeropolis. Wonderful. People from all over came to Aeropolis because of the healing properties, the restorative properties of their hot water. So that's one city, six miles away from Laodicea. So when Laodicea was built by the Romans, they built an aqueduct. Now, sometimes when you think aqueduct, you're thinking this above ground thing. Well, parts of this aqueduct were underground. How can that be? Because the elevation of Areopolis was, Areopolis was higher than Laodicea. So they built a six-mile aqueduct, these stones with, with um, channels in the middle that allowed the hot spring water to flow down to Laodicea. So that was one water source. There's another water source for the city of Laodicea, and that's the water from Colossae. The water from Colossae was well-known. Why? Because Colossae was at the bottom of this. Show me that next slide. Mount Cadmus. It's a mountain. Mount Cadmus, the next slide. Okay, maybe there isn't one. Do we have a slide of Mount Cadmus? Okay, we don't have a slide. So imagine a mountain and it's white capped and Colossae is at the bottom. Colossae was known for its mountain fresh, cold, refreshing water. So you have these two cities, cold water it's known for, hot water it's known for. They're both very, very useful. And so what happens in Laodicea? 
by the time the water from either Mount Cadmus through the rivers or through the aqueduct arrived to Laodicea, the water was lukewarm. It had lost its properties of being really cold and refreshing and clean because as it traveled, it picked up sediments and, and became impure. The water that came through the aqueduct um, was full of calcium carbonate. And it had an, I always get this word wrong, emetic effect. I learned that new word this last week. Um, it had an emetic effect. So when you drink lukewarm water with a lot of calcium carbonate in it, guess what it makes you want to do? It makes you vomit. It makes you vomit. So what is Jesus saying here? He says, you're neither hot like the hot springs that are restorative in Aeropolis or cold like the mountain water that, that's in Colossae. You are useless. I want to spit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. Now, this isn't necessarily the letter the church at Orangewood wants to hear from the risen Jesus. You're lukewarm. You make me sick. But this is where I stop and I go, okay, is this, is this letter for us? Maybe this letter isn't for us. And I'm going to get to that at the end of the sermon. But I think it is for us. Because I think there is a disease in the church, not just here, it's everywhere. But it's vomit-inducing lukewarmness. And, and we get complacent in our culture we allow the culture to, to shape us into its mold instead of allowing the spirit to shape us into the mold of Christ. It's just our propensity. To, it's easier to go with that flow than to fight against it. And so we find ourselves over time losing our restorative ability in our neighborhoods and in our church and in our culture or the refreshing ability that we have. Why? Because we have the gospel of grace to share. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us that enables us to love other people, not just with, a, not just with an ill-motivated love. I'm going to help you across the street because I need to check that box off so I feel good at night that I helped somebody across the street. No, when you have the Spirit of God inside of you, you have the God of love spirit inside of you. And you begin to grow in your desire to die to self and live for the sake of others. And you can actually be loving and you can actually do things out of a gratitude, out of a loving motivation, not just to get what you want, not just to do a good work so you can stick a feather in your cap and then you can tell people about your feather. Look how good I am. I did this, 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 this. You see, there's a vomit-inducing lukewarmness that Jesus is challenging the church in Laodicea about because that's where they were. And he said, I'm about to spit you out of your mouth. I think that's important. That means they're in his mouth. That means he cares about them. And there's other indicators in this letter where he implies that he loves them. You see, because some preachers and some commentators say this is a completely unregenerate church. I think there's a real danger in saying that because if you say that, then you go, there's nothing in this letter for Orangewood. We're not completely unregenerate. We do good things. We do good things, I think, out of a godly motivation. Even this month, we've done good things out of a godly motivation to bless our community. So... If it's true that that's the case, and this, is, this letter's for an unregenerate church, then let's go read another letter, because this one doesn't apply to me. I'm not lukewarm. <laughs> Be careful. So let's go to the next verse. It says, I know your works, you're neither cold or hot. Would you that you were either cold or hot? So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The next verse, he says this. 
He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. So why is this church lukewarm? What's the diagnosis? The diagnosis, the, the disease is vomit-inducing lukewarmness. The diagnosis is here's why you have this disease. Because you say, I am rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh my gosh, is it possible to be that self-deceived? And here's my, probably my main point of the sermon for you is self-reliance leads to self-deception. Self-reliant, the more self-reliant you believe you are, the more self-deceived you are and the more lukewarm you are becoming. So that's a warning, right? And that's for me. That's for me. And for you, I trust. So here's what's bizarre. You say you're rich, you're prospering, you need nothing. It's interesting, in 60 AD, this town was flattened by an earthquake. Not surprising that there were earthquakes, that the tectonic plates are so thin that there's hot mineral springs there, that there's earthquakes. In 60 AD, it leveled the town of Laodicea. Rome offered to financially support the rebuilding of Laodicea. Guess what Laodicea said to Rome? Nah, we got this. We're set. We're super wealthy. We don't need anybody's help. Has anyone offered you services or help recently? And you're like, I, I can't take that. You're willing to help other people, but somebody wants to help you and you're like, no, I don't need any help. What is that? That's like this subtle pride or arrogance in our spirit. We want to help other people. Why? Because it makes us feel superior. <laughs> but we don't want anybody helping us because then we feel inferior. Is that really what's going on? Is that a healthy look at how things should work within the church? What if we realize we're all needy? <laughs> so here's the cool thing. Three things. So we talked kind of about the geological, geographical characteristics of Laodicea. Laodicea was known for three main things. Three. Number one, they were the banking center of the entire region. They were the Manhattan of the East Coast. They were the Manhattan of Asia Minor. Laodicea, they had a banking system that was phenomenal. Emperors would come and do their financing there in Laodicea. Roman emperors. It's amazing. They had an amazing banking industry. Second, they also had a medical school that was known for one, they were known for multiple things, but one of the things they were known for was this eye salve. And it was this Phrygian powder. And when you mixed it with water and gave yourself an eye bath, it would soothe the eye and it would heal eye irritations. And they were famous for this eye salve. So they had a medical school. They were bright. They were intelligent. They were creating um, good health for people. Right? So you've got wealth and you've got health coming out of Laodicea. And then the third thing they were known for was their wool industry. They had an amazing system of commerce around wool. And they were famous for black wool. They dyed wool. And they were famous for black wool garments. Black wool garments. I think it's so interesting that even today, when you go to a highfalutin event and it's super formal, what's the most worn color? Black. We even call it black tie events, black tux events, black gowns. We are still in that mode where black represents you've made it. You know, 
You're, you're representing, you're, you're elite, you're, you're at the top of your, of your pile, you know? That's why I wore a black shirt today. So banking, medical, ISAB, famous for, and black wool. So why is that important? Because how does God respond to these people that are self-reliant? They say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable. Listen, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Oh my gosh. So spiritually speaking, the three things, listen, the three things that this city was most good at and most known for were the exact three things that had become the most idolatrous for the Christian believers in that city to the, to the point where they had grown so lukewarm, God is threatening to spit them out of his mouth. This is a warning. So listen, I had this thought and I said, you know, online when you do Google Maps and you're looking for something, there's a little red pin. Imagine a map of, you know, five mile, 10 mile radius from this church. Put a pin everywhere there's a doctor's office, a CVS, a Walgreens, a hospital. Put a red pin in those. Put a red pin in every single bank, every single financial manager, all everything related to money. Put a pin in it. And put a pin in every single merchandising establishment in a 10-mile radius. What does your map begin to look like on your screen? Red. Is this letter for us? Do we need to at least be extremely careful that we don't make money an idol, that we don't make health an idol, that we don't make stuff, what we wear, our image, what we put on when we get in and turn the key, what we put on when we open up our closet, what we put on when we go to church, what we put on to give you the impression that I am something that God may say, Chuck, you don't realize how needy you are. Chuck, apart from me, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, blind, and naked. Apart from me, and my enabling you through every minute of every... Do you see it? Do you see that self-reliance leads to self-deception? It does. So what does Jesus do? He addresses these three main things. You know what? If you're poor, blind, and naked... You are wretched and pitiable. You have probably pitied someone, even this week, that was at a traffic light with a cardboard sign. What is God saying here? The more self-reliant you think you are, the more poor, blind, and naked you are. You need me every nanosecond. So church, is it possible that money is becoming an idol for you? That health, do you realize that only wealthy people are overly consumed with health? That's because they have the money for it. We have medical insurance, and we have supplemental medical insurance, and we have supplemental supplemental medical insurance, and we have life insurance, and we have long-term disability insurance, and we have car insurance, and we have mortgage insurance. None of these things are bad. You hear me? Please hear that. If you have those things... I'm not judging you. Money is not evil. The love of money is what 
is the root of all evil. The love of money. So do you have a love for worldly wealth, worldly health, worldly stuff? That's the challenge this morning, Orangewood. Because the more consumed we are by those things, the more checked out we are to being witnesses for Jesus and the kingdom of God. And that's the reason, the ultimate reason he has invaded our hearts and indwelled us with his spirit so that we can be faithful and true witnesses to the gospel of grace. I don't want that to be snuffed out, but I feel the propensity of that every day. I really do. So what does he say? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Let me just show you what these three things are. Gold refined by fire. What is that a symbol of? Peter uses that as a symbol of sincere faith. What is gold refined by fire? It's faith in the gospel of grace. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's trusting him to be who he said he is and that he did what he did for you, believing it, trusting it. That's gold refined by fire. God is saying, your, your real gold, the gold you have in a vault somewhere, the little coins you have that you're investing in, that can be taken away from you in an instant. But refined by fire gold, that, that lasts for eternity. You need that. What else do you need? He says, you need salve. I salve. So that you may see. What is that? So 1 John 2.27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. What is he talking about? The Holy Spirit. So you need faith in Christ. You need his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, it says in the Gospels. That's what you need. You need the Spirit to illuminate and reveal and unveil what is deception so you can recognize what's really true. And then the third thing you need, you need white garments to cover your shame. You have a lack, a lack of righteousness. You're unworthy to be in God's presence in and of yourself. If you're going to be self-reliant, you've got no capacity to be in God's presence. But if you put your faith and trust in the work Christ has done in his perfect life lived, his death on the cross to pay for the penalty of your sin and his resurrection unto eternal life, if you believe he did that work for you, which he did, if you can transfer your trust from your self-reliance to Christ's reliance, he tells us in his word, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, he will give you a robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 talks about it. He will give you a robe of righteousness. Whose righteousness is it? It's Christ's. Christ who was born, lived a perfect life, and died fully and constantly obedient to his Father's will. It's Christ's perfect righteousness. And when you, a broken, prone to be self-reliant sinner, Transfer your trust from you running your life to letting God be your authority. He gives you a robe of white righteousness, and it's Christ's righteousness. 
So you need faith, you need the Holy Spirit, and you need Christ's righteousness. Where does that all come from? It comes through believing the gospel news that we know, everyone. Most everyone in here knows the news. How are you doing at witnessing it? How are you doing at presenting it to your neighbors and to your friends and to your classmates and to your workmates? Are you growing lukewarm? Chuck Berry, are you growing lukewarm? It's possible. Believe me, it's possible. It's so easy for me to not have any non-Christian friends. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to love all you, so I don't have to have any non-Christian friends. That's not who he's called me to be. I don't want to become lukewarm. So what does he say next? He says this. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Listen, this is sonship language. This is a father speaking to his children language. A father disciplines his son because he loves him. That's out of Proverbs. There is sonship language throughout Scripture. God loves his children. He will therefore teach you, discipline you, correct you, convict you, maybe even this morning of your lukewarmness, maybe of your idolatrous propensities towards wealth, towards health, towards stuff. He loves you. He wants you to be fully alive in him. He wants you to have gold refined by fire. He wants you to wear a white garment. He wants you to have eyes that truly see reality so that you won't be easily deceived. He reproves and disciplines those he loves. And so what does he say? Be zealous and repent. Own your brokenness. Own it. Own your idolatrous propensities. Admit them to God. Admit to him that you want to be self-reliant, that it's easier to be self-reliant, you think. That you're not doing so bad at being self-reliant. So maybe this whole gospel thing is a crock. Oh my, be careful, church. Your next brainwave and heartbeat is a gift of his enabling grace. You don't want him to withdraw his enabling grace from you. And he won't. He wants you to be in him. If you're in him, he's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to discipline you as long as necessary to conform you into the image of Christ. All right. So lastly, in verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So here's the famous, the famous illustration from the seventh letter of seven in Revelation. I stand at the door and knock. Chuck! Hey, Chuck! This verse is often used for evangelism. The context of this letter, however, is Jesus is standing outside a church knocking on the door. Could it be your heart? Yes, because you're the church. But he stands and he knocks. And where are we? Here's where Chuck often is. Daughters, don't snicker too loudly. Here's where Chuck is. I'm working. I'm working it, baby. I got my earbuds in. 
I have at least two screens running because look, I can look up verses here while I'm writing the sermon here. I can pay my bills on here. I can buy Christmas presents on here. I got these screens, man. And they are designed, I have been visual my entire life. My parents couldn't get me away from the Saturday morning cartoon TV screen very easily. If, it, if it's visual and if it's imagery, um, why do you think I have props when I preach? <laughs> but listen, is this, a, is this a problem for any of your households out there? Is this a problem for any of you? It's actually designed to draw you in. It is designed to grab your attention and increase your usage of it. We need to be careful, church, because someone may be knocking on our door, and can I hear them? No. I can't tell you, with the invention of phones and earbuds and things, I mean, Ellie, I'm going to tell on Ellie for a minute. Ellie's in the room. Sorry, Ellie. There are times when I come in the house and go, Ellie, no answer. Like, Ellie, Ellie, where are you? I have to go hunt her down. You know, she's in the bathroom or in the bedroom. What has she got in her ears? These. She's listening to music or some Broadway show or something. She can't hear me. Can I share something with you? Attention. Listen, attention is worship. Whoa. Attention is worship. What has your attention, church? Is it Jesus through his Holy Spirit? Are you meditating in God's word, marinating in what is absolutely certain and true so you can discern what is a distraction? So look, Jesus is knocking. What does he promise to do if you open the door? What does he promise to do here? Come in. And what does he promise to do when he comes in? Tell me. He wants to sup with us. What's interesting is usually when we come into somebody's house, they prepare the meal for us. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is the meal. He longs to have intimacy and fellowship with you. He comes in and he promises that he will sit with you and have intimate fellowship with you. He is the bread of life. He is the clean, refreshing, living water that comes out of the well that is endless. And he wants you to drink of it deeply and constantly. And then he is the one who was crushed so that our iniquities could be forgiven. And I think the allusion to this table, it's not too far off to be reminded of the table of communion, the Lord's Supper. He comes in and says he will sup with you, but he brings the meal. He is the meal. And you are utterly dependent on that meal to be spiritually healthy, spiritually vibrant, spiritually alive, a healthy and truthful witness. You with me? So, do you think this letter has anything to do with us? I have two quotes. These were both from sermons I listened to. This is the first one. At the end of this long sermon on this text, this is what the pastor said. May it never be that a letter like this or any of the other letters of warning or judgment ever be written to us. 
And I was just having such a hard time when I heard that because I read this letter and I'm going, this is definitely for me. (laughs) I am a wayward son. It's for me. It's for the church. Another quote from another pastor is this. I believe that the message to the church in Laodicea is the most directly applicable message to churches in the United States that we find from these seven letters. And I believe that it is the letter with which more of us in this room can identify than anything else that we read in the letters to the seven churches because of the fact, because the fact of the matter is most of us struggle with the disease of vomit-inducing lukewarmness. God help us. So church, I leave it up to you. Are you distracted? Where is your attention? Attention is worship. And self-reliance leads to self-deception. Where are you? When God says, revive yourself, be zealous and repent, do you need that? Do you need that this morning? Pray with me. Father God, I need this, and I need to repent. Father, I am prone to believing that I got this, that I can handle this. I am prone to believing that it is all up to me to provide for myself and my family. Why would I believe that? Except for the fact that I don't believe that you are going to take care of my needs, that you are not in charge of all things. Father, forgive me for my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And please continue to discipline me, continue to to conform me into the image of Christ, continue to rebuke me, to challenge me, to expose my idols to me, continue to do that. I need it. Father, and I realize that it's a loving Father that continues to put those kind of circumstances in my life. So Father, I turn to you and I acknowledge that you, Jesus, you are the amen. You are the true and faithful witness. You are my only righteousness. And I trust you. And I trust what you've done for me. Your perfect life lived, your death on the cross to pay for my sins, your resurrection from the dead, and the fact that you sit in the throne room of God now, mindful of me, mindful of Orangewood, mindful of your churches all over this globe. So, Father, purify us, encourage us, strengthen us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.